Thanks, Mary. Uh, how many of y'all knew that second song? Now, just hold your hands up and keep them up. See, the righteous of God. Um, I remember my daddy singing that song. My wife leaned over and she said, of course, my, I married an associate reformed Presbyterian. She'll, she'll stump her toe and she'll get up and say, I'm glad I got that over with. Um, but I, I remember my dad singing it. Um, hadn't heard it in a long time. But I visited a man about two years ago, uh, and you know who he is, who came to Jesus Christ because of that song. He's up now in his late 70s, has cancer in his neck. Um, I'm trying to think of his name. Lived in the neighborhood with us. Had cancer, played the trombone, but gave his life to the Lord because he said the words of that song just kept coming back and back and back to him over and over again. Let me tell you something. Uh, the theology in some of the old songs are what we need to catch a hold of uh, in our day. So anyway, I didn't have anything to do with picking that, but I found that pretty, pretty fascinating. I've got a couple of things I need to do up front. Um, members class, we are Valleydale this Sunday. Sign up at the info. Uh, the next class will be September the 16th. So if you're here, you're a guest, you're visiting, and you say, hey, we're interested in joining Valleydale, you sign up, and Debbie and I will be there Sunday, and Barry is going to be there. Courtney, are you going to be there? Uh, they're going to be there. We'll all be there. Jeff is going to be there. So uh, we look forward to seeing you Sunday at that. Uh, the men's ministry kickoff is this coming Sunday night at 5 o'clock in the big room. I'm going to be preaching to the men. And then uh, first impressions. I hope that I've got a bunch of y'all that are going to show up September the 9th for first impressions. Um, Greeting our folks is so very important. It's an important thing that we need to do here that we need to work on and be sure we've got it right. If you've got your Bibles tonight, let me, let me get you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6 and then to 2 Timothy chapter 1. I want you to listen. The last thing Paul is saying in chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, he is in prison. He's writing Timothy. And he tells him this in verse 20. He closes out this little epistle, this pastoral epistle that he sends to Timothy, who is at Ephesus trying to pastor a church, a young guy in a, in a big church there um, that, uh, who is nervous and he is young and he is afraid and he says, don't let him bother you, buddy. Don't let them buy. You do this one thing. You give them the word. And that's what he comes right here and he says, Oh, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Guard it. Now you get over to 2 Tim Timothy chapter 1, and he's going to say the same thing again in verse 14. This is the these are the last words of Paul. Paul look, one of the last things Paul says to Timothy is this, uh, Get the parchments, bring my coat, stop by, pick up Mark, and uh, be sure you come before winter. You be sure you leave Ephesus so that you can navigate the sea and get here to Rome before winter. We don't know if that happened. We have no idea if Timothy was able to make it there before they executed Paul. But he comes in, this, in these last words, 
2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 14, and he says, Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure. The word there is kalos in the Greek, and it simply means the good. That good thing that's been put in you. That good thing that's been entrusted to you. The treasure which has been entrusted to you. Now, what was that treasure? What was that good that had been entrusted to him? The, the Word of God, the gospel. He's saying this, you guard it. You be sure that whatever you do, you take care to preach the Word of God. You guard that. Don't let anybody, don't let anything permeate into the fellowship. Don't let anything infiltrate into the fellowship of God that would turn people away from the Word of God. So Paul says, you guard that. And there's a second thing that helps the church keep from making this drift or coasting away or drifting away off into heresy or off into disbelief or off into compromise, which is where the vast majority of the church in America is today. Amen. Y'all know, you're beginning to learn me. If you don't amen, I'll amen myself. Amen. That's where the church is today. But there's another great help in this battle that keeps the church from drifting off into heresy or to compromise or apathy or disbelief, and that's church history. Um, I don't think that anything in our day has probably challenged the church as much as Dan Brown's book, uh, The Da Vinci Code. Now you say, well, now I, I haven't read it, hadn't influenced me. It has, and you don't even realize it. Uh, that's the danger of this, is that it has had a tremendous impact on our day and what's happening in the church. It was a very fascinating book. As I shared with you last week, everybody's reading it. Uh, it involved a symbologist, uh, somebody who looked at symbols especially, and then he throws in that great uh, Roslyn Chapel there in Scotland and all of the things there, there's symbols and all of this that's telling us that in this place somewhere is hidden, not just the, uh, the, the, last, uh, chal- the chalice from the Last Supper, but also the temple, uh, the Knights Templar uh, also snuck out of Jerusalem as they left the head of Jesus Christ. Anybody read the book? Anybody see the movie? Well, anyway, that's what, he's, that's what he's doing. He's looking. He's on the chase along with a cryptologist, and they're looking for the priori of Zion, which is basically this secretive group who is to protect. The blood in the chalice that is spoken of, they say, is not juice or wine in a cup, but it was the child that Jesus had with Mary Magdalene. And so many people at, back in 2003 and 2004 were reading this and they were coming and saying, well, well what in the world? Was this true, true and did it happen? And, uh, they, you know, and you would try to answer that as best you could and they kept coming out saying, this is fictional, this is fictional. But if you go to the book and open it up to a page or two beyond uh, the copyright page, you will see that it states these are factual events. Now, was it fact or is it fiction? 
Is it fact or is it fiction? Did Jesus Christ marry Mary, Mary Magdalene? Did they have a child? Is there this secret group? Were the Knights Templar, did they get the head of Jesus Christ and bring it out of Jerusalem? All these things. Is it fact or is it fiction? Well, let me tell you something. We live in a day where truth is determined by whomever. Your truth is your truth. You ever heard that? Your truth is your truth. You just get to make up truth. So if you get to make up truth, then you get to make up your own facts as well, don't you? So facts and truth really don't matter a whole lot anymore. And that's what you find in this whole concept of Dan Brown when he starts out with a murder in the Louvre in Paris. The former royal palace of the royal family of France now the most famous museum in the world, in 1989 constructed this pyramid because it's the new entrance into uh, the museum there. And Dan Brown on page 29 speaks of that very pyramid and he says there are 666 panes of glass in that pyramid. Now I'm going somewhere with this, so hang on. Now doesn't that sound ominous? Six, six. Six. There are actually 673 panes of glass in that pyramid there. Dan Brown did not do his research, but when you don't care about the truth, the facts don't matter, right? So if I'm going to accept what he says about panes of glass in a glass pyramid, which is nothing more than the entranceway into a museum, am I going to trust what he says when he comes in 325? to the Council of Nicaea and Constantine deciding for the rest of history that Jesus Christ was divine. Nope, I'm not going to accept that. I'm going to do some study and I'm going to look at this and that's exactly what I want you to do uh, this evening with me and as we carry on through uh, through this study. Last week I ended up by talking to you, I got you through 400 years of history, and then I got uh, to about 70 A.D., and I got you there, and I started to talk about the age of, of the Catholic Church, the age of the Catholic Church. That's with a small C, not a capital C. The Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, was not formed at that time, was not around at that time. The word Catholic means universal. Uh, So you have to distinguish when you hear that word, is it speaking of the denomination or is it referring to the universal church? So I'm going to take you through the age of the universal church. A couple of hundred years from 70 to 313 is what I'm going to look at. Now, 70 ought to just stand out in your mind. That date, 70 AD, ought to just rivet in your mind. Now hold on to that because just a few years before that in 66, a bunch of Galileans up in northern Galilee started a revolt against the Romans and that revolt eventually led to what we know as the first Jewish war. Started in 66, it's completed in 70 with the burning of the temple. They also looted the temple. Um, In those years, about 66, Vespasian comes down from Rome. He's got the 5th, the 10th, and the 15th Roman legions. 
His son, Titus, comes with the 12th Roman legion, and they encircle the city of Jerusalem in 70. They eventually break through. They loot the temple. By the way, they so flood the market with gold that came out of the temple uh, that the price of gold dropped dramatically across the Roman Empire. That gold is what Vespasian, Titus's father, is going to use to build the Roman Colosseum and rebuild Rome because... A few years before that, in 64, you had the Great Fire of Rome. Uh, the Great Fire of Rome was started most likely, as history has attested, there are a lot of people who debate it today, but a lot of people say that it was Nero who started the Great Fire of Rome. Um, he, you know, historians today will say, well, he was not in town. Well, that really didn't matter. That probably was his cover. Uh, and the citizens of Rome believed that he had done it, that he set the city on fire. He wanted to rebuild Rome, and the thing he wanted to build was he wanted to build his own palatial palace. It's right If you've ever been to Rome, his palace sat right there, right in front of where the Colosseum. The Colosseum was a, a big lake that Nero had built, and he built his golden palace right there on that lake. He had a revolving, he had a revolving dining room. Now, you just stop and think about the engineering mind of the ancient Romans, it's pretty fascinating. He had a revolving dining room that had lattice work across the ceiling, and it had, it had tubes that would spritz perfume down on everybody as you sat and ate. And that floor would revolve. It had an underground water system and cogs and wheels that would turn that floor, and Nero sat in the middle, and it was, it was as if Nero were saying, I am the sun, and everything in the universe revolves around me. I'm, I'm the earth, I guess at that time, and everything in the universe revolves around me. Everything is centered around me. Um, that was the kind of guy that he was. Well, he wanted to build that. He sets the city on fire, and the people of the city believe that it's him, and in order to get that, <laughs> in order to get that attention away from him, he's going to blame the Christians. So I started you off last week, I talked about in this age of, of uh, Catholic Christianity, the spread of, uh, of Christianity, just the explosive spread of Christianity across the empire. The gospel went everywhere in just a very short period of time. That was the first thing. Now tonight I want to come back to the second thing, and it's this whole thing of persecution, the age of persecution, the period of persecution. Nero starts it. He begins it with blaming the fire of Rome on the Christians. And what he does is this. Uh, one of the most famous things that Nero does with Christians is that he takes them, he impales them on a stick, he dips them in pitch, and then he lights them while they have a garden party so that burning Christians become the light out there in the gardens of Nero. That was that was one more off his rocker guy, wasn't it? Well, that's what he does. And so he begins this persecution of Christians, and it just continues. If they do it in Rome, if they do it in Washington, if they do it in San Francisco, well, Lord knows, it must be fine to do it everywhere else, right? Well, if they do it in Rome, let's just do it everywhere. And so the persecution of Christians began to spread across the entire Roman Empire. Nero is gone, Vespasian comes, Vespasian goes, Titus comes, 
and you begin to have this whole succession of these Caesars who come, and each one of them carries on this persecution of Christians. And the whole question is this, why? Why in the world does Rome worry about Christians? They have no army. They have no weapons. Why in the world does Rome worry about Christians? And why are they going to persecute them so? Why are Christians persecuted for believing in Jesus Christ? What you're going to discover is this, is that Rome conquered all of these areas, and when they conquered these areas, they incorporated the beliefs of every people, every culture, every society into their own beliefs. Um, They just would take over an area, and they would accept and embrace and bring into the Roman pantheon of God's all the gods from this place. So I'm going to give you four reasons why. Now, there's a lot that's happening. You remember my time? It's from 70 to 313. By the way, 313 is uh, when Constantine issues the Edict of Milan, which outlaws the persecution of Christians. So we're going to go from 70. There's, there's Constantine. He was a little stiff. But, uh, and there's the, there's, there's the edict of Milan right there. You're going to go from 70 AD, somebody wanted me to give a timeline, to about 313. Now, there are a lot of things happening in this period of time, and I don't have endless hours to stand up here and give it to you, uh, so I can only narrow it down. And one of the things I want to talk to you about is why did Rome persecute these Christians? They embraced everything else. Why in the world would they turn? There are four reasons why Rome persecuted Christians. Uh, the way they did. Number one was the distinctiveness of Christianity. Their society was so pluralistic. They worshiped every god in any, they had just this smorgasbords of God, this smorgasbord of gods out there, except for Christianity. And the reason is twofold in this it's because Christianity is monotheistic. We have one God. They had many, many gods. Now, the Jews are monotheistic. Christians are monotheistic. There are three great monotheistic religions in Islam. Uh, and they had, a real, they had a real struggle with this. They had a real struggle with the fact that they won't worship the gods we worship. They won't, uh, they won't participate in uh, the religious rites that we participate in because they believe that there's just one God and they say that there's no way to that God except through his son, Jesus Christ, and the price that he paid at Calvary. So the Romans um, persecuted Christians because of the uniqueness of Christianity, and that was the monotheism, but probably even more than that was the morality of Christians. Uh, You have a very immoral society in Rome. Um, And you had these people that made up part of that empire that were growing and their morality was growing. It's the opposite of what you find in America today. It's the opposite of what you see in the Western world today. Now, let me just give you an illustration. In the Roman world, if a woman was expecting, uh, she could... um, just take the life of the baby. Now, abortificants in that day and time uh, were a little bit tricky. You know, if you took something to kill uh, the baby in the womb, it most likely would end up killing you. So what would happen would be this. They would take the baby to full term. 
Now, we think this is just absolutely horrible. They would take the baby to full term, and then they would discard the baby. They would throw the baby away. Every time they dredge out the Tiber River, Rome was built really right in the curve of the Tiber River. Every time they dredge out the Tiber, they uncover tons of bones from infants. Babies by the tens of thousands, by the hundreds of thousands, were simply just given birth and thrown into the river. And you say, well, now that's just so pagan. That is just so, that's just so horrible. Well, let me tell you what we do today. We're, we're, such, a, we're such, an, uh, uh, such an advanced culture that we will deliver a baby most of the way out of the birth canal and then just snip the spinal cord right here at the base of the brain. And we think that that is the death of the child in the womb. And then they'll finally deliver the rest of the baby. Now, aren't we so cultured? Are we better than the Romans? You know, the other thing Romans would do was this. Um, With a little baby girl, most of the time, they would simply throw the child in a field and throw the child away. And um, what would happen would be somebody from a brothel would come by and would collect these little girls and would rear them to work in brothels. And if they didn't do that, they would then just simply sell them into slavery. Now, Christians began to go out at night through the fields around the city of Rome and search for discarded babies. We have accounts of this that they would look for discarded babies wherever they could find them, and they would take those babies and rear them as their own. Now, that grated on the nerves of the Roman Empire. It really just rubbed up against the Roman Empire, and they didn't like that. So that they would turn to these Christians and say, we're just going to persecute you and kill you, and get you out of the way. Now, I have to tell you that Dan Brown, as well as a lot of people in the Western world today, have got a struggle at this point. And the struggle is this, is that no one has done more for female gender than Christianity. I didn't say an individual person who called himself a Christian or even a denomination, but let me tell you this. No one did more for the female gender than Jesus Christ. It was Jesus Christ who was touched by a little old woman who had an issue of blood, most likely a cancer, who turned around in the midst of a crowd and talked to her in a society where a rabbi wouldn't even speak to his wife. If I'm the, if I'm the rabbi here, I wouldn't even speak to my wife in public. And Jesus turned around and engaged her as a daughter in conversation. It was Jesus Christ who stepped in between a howling mob and a woman that was caught in adultery, most likely the guy was in that mob picking up a stone to stone her, and Jesus interjected himself there, got rid of them, and turned and spoke lovingly to her. It was Jesus Christ, and 
Luke uh, chapter 7, uh, that was in the home of Simon the Pharisee when this woman, Simon in his mind, is thinking, if you know what kind of woman that is, you won't let her touch you. And that woman was there with a vial of perfume who anointed his feet, who was weeping and washing his feet with her tears and drying his feet. No one did more for the gender female than Jesus Christ did. It was Mary who took the gospel first that Jesus Christ had been risen. It was Mary to whom the resurrected Christ spoke first. So when it comes to this whole thing of women, Jesus Christ has done more than any government, any political party, or any other religion for the female gender. And Christians were persecuted because they cared and believed that every life was significant, precious, and created in the image of God. If you're here and you've gone through an abortion, I'm not condemning you. I'm simply stating that every life is precious and we love you and your life and we care about you. And you matter to us, regardless of what you've done in your life. And so that was the first thing about um, uh, the Roman persecution. It was because of their monotheism, and it was also because of their morality. The second thing is because of uh, their worship. Uh, They worshiped in a way that the Romans slandered. Now, this is kind of interesting. You think about the Lord's table. We're going to come and we're going to take the Lord's table this coming Sunday. Well, the interesting thing is this. The Lord's table was not always taken the way we do it. That is, in the first Christian century, they didn't pass around a little cup like that with a little bit of Welch's grape juice and a little small, tiny wafer with it. They didn't do that. It was part of a meal. Uh, The meal, uh, and in the middle of the meal, if you remember, uh, the Lord's Supper was the Passover meal. Well, in the middle of the meal, somewhere they incorporated into that meal these elements of the Last Supper, of the Lord's Supper. And so they would come together and they would eat a meal. And do you know what they called it? Uh, We understand from 1 Corinthians what it was. What did they call it? They called it a love feast, an agape feast. Well, the Romans in their perverted mind, and they wanted to twist what the Christians were doing anyway, said that all the Christians were doing were coming together and having an orgy. They were there involved in illicit relationship, and that's what they were doing. And then beyond that, they said not just that, but they said they are cannibals because they talk about eating blood and eating the, drinking blood and eating the body. So they persecuted them because of their worship. The third thing was because they considered them atheists. Now, this is really kind of wild when you stop and think about it. The Romans considered Christians to be atheists. And you say, well, that's just too far-fetched. That that can't be. Well, it can be if you're reared in a pagan religion that worships this plurality of gods. You've got a God for everything. You've got a God for thunder. You've got a God for lightning. You've got a God for the sun. You've got a God for the rain. You've got a God for the plants. You've got a God for uh, reproductive purposes. You've got all these gods. And so they looked at Christians in their monotheism and they said, you know what, these are just atheists. Now let me give you an illustration of that. Uh, A little time after Constantine comes an emperor by the name of Julian, 
And there is this great drought across the Roman Empire. And there's a famine. Now listen, you don't march an army just on goodwill. The Roman army marched on its belly. An army marches on its stomach. And when they were short of wheat and they were short of grain, they couldn't move their troops like they needed to move their troops. And so this thing had gotten very serious. And Julian came uh, uh, not quite 100 years after Constantine. Constantine then made Christianity. We'll get to this eventually. He made Christianity uh, the, 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 the religion of the empire. Julian comes along and he says, the reason we've got all these problems is because of Christians. See also America 2018. The reason we have all of these problems is because of these Christians that are here. These Christians are the problem. They're great. They've angered all of these gods because they will not pray to them. They will not sacrifice to them. And so these gods have taken out their judgment on us in this drought, and there is this famine, and we're suffering because of the Christians. Now, that was their line of reasoning. So Julian the apostate, that's what he becomes known as, Julian the apostate calls for the entire empire to sacrifice to Caesar and to pray to the gods. Now, that's no problem if you're over here and you're, you're worshiping uh, some dog god or some frog god like the Egyptians did, uh, just to add something else to that, that's no problem. But when you come to Christians, that's an act of blasphemy. That's an act of idolatry. And so the Christians are not going to do that. And because they're not going to do that, Julian the apostate says, well, this is what's going to happen. We're going to begin to put you to death again. We're going to start, we're going to start executing you again. We're going to start punishing you again. We're going to start persecuting you again because all of our problems are because of you Christians who will not embrace and be tolerant and be inclusive the way you should be. You ever, you, does that sound like anything to you? Coming soon to a country near you. Because you will not embrace every other religion, because you will not say that all these gods just represent the one true God, because you won't come together and say that and believe that and participate, and you begin to ask yourself the question in all of this, well, should we just go along with some of this? Should, should we just go along and some of this just become acceptable to us? because we won't embrace these other religions. Have you read uh, in the last 24, 48 hours what Xi of China uh, is, has begun to enact there, the persecution now against the church? He says in five years he's going to eradicate Christianity from China. In five years he has begun tearing down every picture that they can find of Christ, and where they tear down a pit, picture of Christ, they put up a poster of Xi and the Communist Party. And so he says, we're going to do away with it. You can be anything else, but what you cannot be is you cannot be a Christian. You cannot be an evangelical. You cannot worship Jesus Christ. And so that's exactly what the Roman Empire was saying right there. The fourth thing is the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Now, I read a fair amount of Roman history. In fact, I'm reading a book right now entitled... Uh, a history of Rome in seven sackings. Uh, there were seven falls of Rome, not just one. Seven times, seven different times Rome fell through history. Uh, but they always 
uh, talked about the Roman peace, the Roman peace, the Roman peace, the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. It was so important. That was utmost. Whatever you do, keep the peace. Yet the funny thing is, is that Rome never had peace. It kind of reminds me of our day. In our day, we talk about peace in the Middle East. We talk about peace on the Korean Peninsula. We talk about peace with China. We talk about peace with, with Russia. We talk about all of this, and yet all I can think about is that they say peace and safety, and then sudden destruction comes upon them, 1 Thessalonians. Well, Rome wanted to tout their peace, and the way they unified everybody was through the worship of Julius Caesar. You could worship your gods, you could do anything you wanted to in your religion. Just once a year, you had to come and stand before a bust of Caesar, whoever Caesar happened to be at that time, and there in just a little flame, take a pinch of salt and throw that salt into that flame and say these words, Caesar Curios, Caesar is Lord. Um, if you ever go with me sometime uh, to Greece, I take all of our groups over to um, Ephesus. And going through Ephesus uh, this past year, we were in Israel this year. By the way, we're going to Israel this coming year in March, if, if you'd like to go with us. I'm going in December um, to a previous engagement. I have I previously committed to take Tim Tebow and his family on a personal tour of Israel. So I'm taking them in December and then I'm going to take a group uh, in March. But if you ever get with me to Ephesus, I can take you down that street there in Ephesus, and I can stop you at a little, it looks like, um, what do you call those things, uh, baby, that you put bus on? What do you call those? Podium? A, a pedestal. A pedestal. There's a pedestal there, and on it, it has Kaiser Curios. And I stopped there and I said, I, I can almost bet you somebody's last dollar that on that pedestal right there was a bust of Caesar and everybody at a time of year had to come by and just throw that pinch of salt into a little fire and say those words. Now, the question comes is, well, why, you know, surely that's not that big of a thing deal. That's not that big of an issue. You know, you can believe in your heart something different. You're just going through the motions. It doesn't really mean anything to you, you know, just to keep the peace, just to go along, just to say, you know, we want everything. And I have so many people tell me that about so many things that people in the church are embracing in our day that scare me. This whole thing about homosexual marriage well, let's j just go along with it. Just do it. It's okay. It's all right. You know, I've, somebody's in my family that uh, has that uh, leaning, and what do you do, and why, why be so mean? Listen, let me tell you something. The devil will work you over why you should embrace what he's trying to sell you. Amen. Amen. Why not just do that? Because to do it is sin. That's why. That's why, that's why I cannot say anybody is Lord but Jesus Christ. And so the Christians were persecuted and put to death because of that very thing. Let me tell you, 
coming to a nation near you. Let me give you the third thing. Now, do you remember the other two things that I've already given you now? In the uh, age of Catholic uh, Christianity, you've got the spread of Christianity. You have got the persecution of Christianity. And now you have got the infiltration and the permeation of heresy into Christianity. That's what's taking place at this time. That's what's happening right now. You, um, you begin to look at that and you think, well, where is the heresy and what is the heresy and what did the heresy do and did they force Christians into this? And all of that is, yes, they did. And you begin to get a little bit discouraged as you watch all of these heresy, heresies that seep into the early church. And you begin to get discouraged when you think about what they were embracing and what they were accepting. And you begin to get discouraged to the point to where I would tell you, do not forget what Joseph said to his brothers. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Let me tell you what comes out of these few hundred years right here between 70 and 313 when you have all of these heresies that begin to infiltrate. You've got Marcionism. You've got Zoroastrianism. You've got Gnosticism. I'm going to talk about that in just, just a second. You've got a lot of these things that are just infiltrating the church. What it forced the church to do was this. It forced the church to come together and turn to Scripture and settle in Scripture what it believed. So what we look at and we think, well, this is horrible and this is terrible. Let me tell you, I, I worry about our country. I worry about the world these grand boys of mine are going to have to grow up in. It concerns me, but I want to tell you something. Even in these days, God's doing something. God's at work. Don't get discouraged. Don't be discouraged. Let me tell you, God is alive and he's doing well and he's still sitting on that sovereign throne and he is in control and if you go to Hebrews chapter 1, you'll read where Jesus Christ is bringing everything to the foot of God the Father. Everything is going to end up right there. Don't believe what you think sometimes. It's not gotten out of God's control. A lot of crazy stuff, but it's not out of God's control. Well, heresies will do two things. Number one, they're going to always attack the deity of Jesus Christ. And number two, they're going to always attack the Word of God. Those two things right there. At that point right there, that's exactly what Dan Brown does constantly in the Da Vinci Code over and over and over again. He goes after these two things. Well, listen, he's not really the Son of God. That's a line out of the movie. He's not the Son of God. He is a man married to Mary Magdalene. So he's attacking not only the deity of Jesus Christ there, He's also attacking the Word of God. Now, these heresies that come about, what, where did they come from and what were they about? Well, let me just give you two of them. One, it's kind of interesting, and I only bring this one up because it's kind of fascinating, the Ebionites. The Ebionites did not believe that Jesus Christ was divine. They did not believe that He was the Son of God. They did not believe that He was born of the Virgin Mary. In fact, they believed that He was the son of Joseph and Mary. But what they believed was this. They believed that Jesus came like Moses, and instead of giving the law like Moses, Jesus came to take away some of the restraints off of us. In other words, he's kind of come to set me free to do whatever I jolly well want to do. Now, that listen, 
That, that could be the Jesus of America right now. He's come to set me free. Listen, I want to show my freedom in Christ, so I can just go out and do anything I want to do. They believe the way you were saved was through baptism. Now, let me tell you something. You can get in that baptistry right there, a dry center, and come out a wet one. That water's not going to do you one bit of good. The second thing is Gnosticism. Gnosticism, and there's all kind of brands of Gnosticism uh, if you start looking at it, and I'm just going to give you the basic overview of Gnosticism. They didn't believe that Jesus was human, and they did not believe that Jesus was God. I mean, they didn't like either one of them. They believed that he was a created being a little higher than the angels, and that he appeared here on earth to be like a man, but he was really a spirit. And so when he got to the cross and they crucified him, none of that really hurt him. He didn't feel it because he was a spirit, but he just kind of went through the agony and the pain, and he kind of faked dying until they could put him in the tomb uh, because he was a spirit. He was not flesh. And uh, to be flesh is to be evil, and spirit is good. And so that's the way the Gnostics understood it. And if you really read anything of Dan Brown's novel, to me, Dan Brown is a modern-day Gnostic married to witchcraft is basically what it amounts to in my book. Now, I use that because so many people read that and so many people began to embrace what is he saying and is this true and maybe this is right. But let me close with two things. Number one, let me close with a creed in Latin. In Latin, the word creed means I believe. I'm going to put this up. I believe in God Almighty, Jesus Christ, His only Son. Now, let me tell you, this creed was written in the year 150 to 200. That's about 175 years before um, the Council of Nicaea. If we say that it was written, let's just split the difference there and say 175. So it's about 175 years before the Council of Nicaea. I believe in God Almighty, Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was born of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. Well, it sounds like to me that's a confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. Uh, about 150 to 175 years before Constantine held the Council of Nicaea. So that's not some, something somebody dreamed up. Now, what I'm telling you folks, somebody's going to ask you one day about this. Somebody's going to ask you, how do you know that, that this is really so. Well, look at what they were quoting 150 A.D. I believe in God Almighty, Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, our Kurios, who was born of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. There He was. He was born of a virgin. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate and buried. He died. On the third day, He arose again. They confessed the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Knights Templar did not come out of Jerusalem with the skull of Jesus Christ. The Christ, Christ's head is in heaven with the rest of him. He arose from the dead who ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father from whence he comes to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost and the Holy Church. Now, this is before. Um, sometimes they will quote that as the Holy uh, Catholic Church, which just simply means the universal church, all the church of Jesus Christ, 
all those who believe in Christ. We believe in the remissions of sin. We believe in the remission of sin, which means I believe that I've got to have my sins forgiven. Something had to be done with my sins. And so, in essence, that creed says that we have to put our faith in Jesus Christ in order to be saved. There's the creed. That's the first thing. The second thing gets down to the deity of Christ because this is so important. Um, I've talked to folks since I've been in Birmingham, Alabama that believe a lot about the church and believe a lot about the Bible, but they just aren't sure that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. Dan Brown will basically tell you this. That was made up in 325 by the Roman emperor, Constantine, and that Jesus never thought that he was divine. Okay, now this is what you need to write down. I'm done at the end of this. Y'all can relax. But you need this. You need this right here. Jesus claimed he would be honored as much as God. John 5, 23. I'm going to look up some of this. I'm just going to read it to you. John 5, 23. Listen to what Jesus says right there. So that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. Who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Sounds like to me. <laughs> Sounds like to me Jesus was pretty convinced. Jesus claimed he could impart eternal life to people. John 5, 21. Look at verse 21 in John chapter 5. A lot of this is going to be right here. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. Jesus said that to him, to see him was to see the Father. John chapter 14, when they come and they say, you know, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me and Allah and Buddha and no, through me, period. Right there, period. He goes on to say this in verse 9, Jesus said, have I been with you so long that you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Sounds like Jesus is pretty convinced to me. Jesus claimed to know, uh, to know him, that is God, uh, and to know that he was God. Chapter 8, verse 19 in John's gospel. Listen to what he says. You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. He comes and he says this. He claimed that to hate him was to hate God, John 15, 23. I'll just give you the verses. Jesus claimed he could forgive sin, Mark 2, verse 5, verse 10. Luke chapter 7, verse uh, 48, when he looks at the woman who had, who had just wept over his feet and wiped his feet and anointed his feet, he looked at her and he said, your sins are forgiven you. Who could forgive sins but God? Jesus accepted worship and being called God. John chapter 20, look at this. John chapter 20, he accepted the worship uh, of Thomas when Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. There it is. You need these passages. Somebody's going to ask you pretty soon. And then John chapter 10, verse 30, uh, Jesus said in that, uh, in that great verse, just listen to these words, I and the Father are one. Are one. So, Dan Brown, 
You should have done your homework. Little, little bit of history and one little good history book would have done it all. Jesus Christ is Lord. Those are the few, those are the few years from 70 to 310. Now, you've got a lot going on. Tertullian is there. Cyprian's about to come on the scene. Uh, Polycarp has just been killed you know, by the emperor. You've got a lot of these guys. Augustine will begin. He's just a little after 313. So you've got a lot of history. If you were preachers, I would have talked about the school of preaching in Alexandria and the school of preaching in Antioch, but y'all aren't preachers, so I didn't talk about it. (laughs) There's a lot of stuff going on in that period of time. Now, let me just stop and ask you, do you have a question? Do you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? You're saved and you know it. Anybody here tonight, you got a question about your salvation? I'll be glad to talk to you from right here, or I'll be glad to go somewhere and just sit down with you. But I want you to know that you know that you know that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I want you, you say, preacher, why are you doing all this? Well, number one, because I love it and I can do it. And number two, I do it because I'm concerned about the church in the 21st century that we don't know what we believe and we ain't got a clue why we believe what we say we believe. And I want you to have a grasp on it. So that's why we do it.